Good morning. Welcome to Simple Church. Um, we're so glad to be here this morning. And if you have been with us, um, we have been in the book of Romans. Um, and, and last week we finished Romans chapter 6. We were going over verses 15 through 23. And so we are going to cover chapter 7 today. Um, last week, the passage that we studied was talking about being slaves to sin or slaves to righteousness, exactly what that means. And today, Paul is going to kind of continue talking about sin, but he's going to talk about it um, kind of in its comparison with the law, how the law and sin work together, how they go together. And so that's what we're going to look at today. As I read Romans chapter 7, I ask that you please have your Bibles open reading along. Romans chapter 7, verse 1. Or do you not know, brothers, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives? For a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives, but if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she is free from the law. And if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead in order that we may bear fruit for God. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. What then shall we say, that the law is sin? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. So the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good in order that sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh sold under sin. For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? 
Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh, I serve the law of sin. Let's pray. Father, once again, thank you for this word. I pray that you will protect it this morning, that you will be glorified through the preaching and the study of your word. I pray that there would be um, nothing that is said that is false about your word, that you would protect it at all costs. And I pray that you would be honored and praised through it this morning. In your son Jesus' name we pray, amen. So as we talked about last week, Paul asks a lot of questions. It's usually to address some type of misunderstanding or misinterpretation of whatever it is that he has just said. And so he starts off chapter seven right here, no different. He says, or do you not know, brothers, for I'm speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives? Um, that sounds kind of common sense. I mean, you only have to follow a law if you're alive. You know, if you're dead, you don't have to follow the speed limit. You're okay. Um, it sounds kind of common sense. But I hope you've also noticed that with Paul's questions, which he usually comes to answer, he always does come to answer, it really is these common sense, very logical answers, but yet they're still misunderstandings. And he brings us to these moments that are what I call duh moments, D-U-H, duh. Okay, we all have these moments. We've all had things that we were thinking about, we were trying to figure out, and for the life of us, we couldn't. And we think about it and think about it, and we still can't figure it out. And later on, usually when we've totally given up and we've quit, it just comes to us out of nowhere. It's these duh moments. I remember... My first year as a head coach, I was coaching um, seventh through ninth grade girls basketball, and I had no clue what I was doing. And so we had an away game one day, and I had a couple of parents who texted me that morning and um, said they wouldn't be able to get off work. We didn't have buses, so we always just kind of carpooled to away games. And they asked if I could take their kids to the game, and I was like, that's no problem, I'll take them. So I go throughout my day. And um, normally what we do on the, the days of away games is we would meet in the gym right after school was over. We would go over some stuff for about 15 or 20 minutes and then we would you know, get in the cars and we would leave. But I think I had maybe a presentation for a class or something like that. It was gonna run a little late and so we weren't gonna be able to go over everything. And so I just told them once their parents got there, they could go ahead and leave, we weren't gonna meet. So. I got there a little while after school had ended, everybody had already left and I'm going to the gym and I'm looking for those two girls and they're not there. And I'm looking around trying to find them. I ask people they're still there, if they've seen them, they haven't. And so I'm a little bit concerned. I try to call their parents, I try to call them. I can't get a hold of anybody, but the place we were going didn't have good service. So I figured they had probably gotten a ride with somebody else and they were already close to being there. Um, I assume that's what had happened. You know what happens when you assume. And so I leave and I show up and all of my girls are there except for those two. So I'm freaking out at this point. I'm trying to call their parents, trying to call them again. But again, we, there, there's no good service so I can't get anything to go through and I'm thinking, where would they be? Why would they not be in the gym? Like, who could they have, have ridden with? And we're warming up. There's about 10 minutes left before the game starts. And out of nowhere, it comes to me. They weren't in the gym because I had texted them and told them to meet me in the office. But I didn't think about it until that point. 
And it was the worst kind of duh moment you can ever have. Like, yeah, they weren't in the gym, dummy. You told them to be somewhere else, right? It was the worst kind of duh moment. And so we moved on after I got down on hand and knee and begged for forgiveness from them and their parents. And, you know, we went on about our day. But we all have those moments where it's something that we've overlooked or we've forgotten or just didn't think about right. Sometimes we don't even know how we missed it. We just did. It's a duh moment. And a lot of these, um, like this question here, they address these duh moments. Obviously, you're not bound to the law if you're dead. Okay, and he gives this example in verses two and three of a married woman. He says, for a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she is free from the law. And if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. Okay, Paul, we get it. That makes sense. So how in the world does that relate to us in any way? Verse four, likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead in order that we may bear fruit for God. Paul tells us that we also are now no longer bound to the law and bound to, as we will see in a minute, sin that the law produces, okay? And we don't often think about ourselves as not being bound to the law. I mean, we know that there's laws we still have to follow. We still are supposed to follow the speed limits. But, you know, we don't really think about ourselves as not being bound to the law. Not that we ignore it, but I don't even think we really many times comprehend what that means. And so as he goes on in verses five and six, he says this, for while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive so that we serve in the new way of the spirit and not in the old way of the written code. It says something very interesting here that stuck out to me. It says, for while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members. To arouse means to awaken, okay? So it's this idea of our sinful passions and desires being awakened by the law. And that may not make sense at first, but we've all kind of dealt with this before. We know what this feels like. We've all had situations where we were struggling with something. There was a temptation that came up or there was a decision that we had to make and we knew what was right and we knew what was wrong, but we were drawn to the thing that was wrong in part because it was wrong. We wanted to, you know, and I've used this analogy before, but that guy cuts us off in traffic and we want to flip him off. Part of the reason we want to do that is because we know that there's a possibility that that could aggravate them or that that's gonna get back at them in some way. It's this revenge mentality and we know it's wrong, but that's part of what makes us wanna do it all the more. We've dealt with this. But what this says in verse six is that because we have died to the flesh through Christ, although those desires may rise, we don't have to follow them. We are no longer bound by them and we can't be condemned by them. And when I say we can't be condemned by them, I mean this. 
We've had situations where we've tried to break out of a cycle of sin or a cycle of temptation. And when we do and we fight against it, there are all of these accusations that come against us that are essentially condemning us. It's, it's these thoughts like, why are you even trying? You know you're gonna lose. Or you may be able to fight it off this time, but the next time you won't. Or you've done it a million times, why even try to stop? What's one time gonna do? We all have these thoughts. But verse six says that these condemnations no longer apply to those who have died with Christ because through his death and his resurrection, we are no longer bound to the law. But the question that arises now is this, verse seven, what then shall we say, that the law is sin? So if the law arouses our sinful passions, I mean, the Bible talks about you know, if your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out. You know, remove anything from your life that's gonna provide temptation for you, that's gonna cause you to sin. So if the law arouses our sinful desires, shouldn't we get rid of it? Isn't it bad? And it says, no, by no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. See, the law does not produce sin, but rather the law shows us, that what, shows us what righteousness is directly. It shows us the character of God and therefore indirectly shows us what unrighteousness is. Whatever is not righteousness is unrighteousness. We can see that. So the law is good. It shows us the path to follow and it shows us the path we should not follow. But here's how sin twist that. We've talked about before how sin likes to twist and pervert things. And here's how it does that. Verse eight, but sin seizing an opportunity through the commandment produced in me all kinds of covetousness for apart from the law, sin lies dead. So although the law is good, we know what sin does. It twists things. And sin is an accuser. It is a condemner. It throws these condemnations at us like we talked about. And although with the law or without the law, sin would exist, these passions in us that are aroused by the law wouldn't be aroused if there was not a written law before us. Because what sin likes to do is it likes to look at unrighteousness and then it likes to kind of poke that fire, right? It wants, us to, le it wants to lead us in that direction. Verse nine, I, once, I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me for sin seizing an opportunity through the commandment deceived me and through it killed me. So the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. So he says this twice that sin seized an opportunity so again, it's not the law that is bad. The law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. It is sin that is constantly working against the law of God that is bad. And that sin arises up in and out of us. So then we're led to another question. Verse 13, did that which is good then bring death to me? Did the law which is good and holy and righteous produce this sin, produce death? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good in order that sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandment 
might become sinful beyond measure. So again, we see here, and it says sin producing death in me through what is good, okay? And we have a very real life example of this, okay? Let's look at the biblical example of sex, which was created between man and woman in a marital relationship, in a covenant, and it's a great and wonderful thing. But what do our sinful desires do? They take any opportunity possible to try to twist it and turn it into something it was never meant to be for our destruction. It's a very straightforward example, and and that's not the only example. It's really anything that's good, sin is gonna try to twist it. Verse 14, for we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh sold under sin. So we see kind of a transition right here. And biblical scholars and theologians debate whether when he says, for we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh sold under sin. Even though he's speaking in the present tense, Uh, biblical scholars debate whether he's talking about himself and kind of reflecting on what his mindset was before his conversion or now that he's been converted and he's preaching and bringing the word to the churches. And people go back and forth and certainly people more knowledgeable and educated than I have their own opinions. But um, I happen to think that he's talking about right now, even though he says, I am of the flesh sold under sin and we know that those who are in Christ are no longer bound to sin. I still think that he's talking about the power that sin holds. We know that even though once we are converted and we come to be saved by Christ, sin is still a very powerful force. We know that. And it really has to do in in this passage whether you think he's talking about the struggles of salvation or sanctification. Salvation being the process by which Christ saves us through his work on the cross and the punishment that we owed to God is now paid off. And so when God sees us, he doesn't see us for our actions, but rather he sees us in the blood of Christ that has covered us. But then sanctification has to do with the lifelong process that comes after that because we know that when we're saved, we're not perfect. We still sin, we still mess up, we still have sinful desires. And so sanctification is the slow lifelong process of Christ making us more like him day by day. And I think that's the the struggles that Paul is talking about here, the struggles of sanctification. And so even though he's talking about being um, sold by sin, sold under sin rather, he's still talking about that power that sin has. And I'll continue to explain that. But I love how honest he is and how vulnerable and open he is here starting in verse 15. It's almost like he takes his preacher hat off and I don't know, he's a real person that you know struggles with stuff. For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing that I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it but sin that dwells within me. 
He says that twice also. He says, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. And it's, he's not making excuses. He's not trying to say that he's not responsible for his sin. He is again here, he's talking about the power of sin, okay? Sin is a powerful force. It is real. It is here right now. Even in this room, sinful natures and desires and passions are here and they are at work. And until we come to be saved by Christ, it controls and dominates every aspect of our life. And when something dominates everything about your life, it takes effort and time and really a lot of failure to be different. Look at verse 18. He says, for I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. Have you ever noticed that we are very quick to find organized, formal practices for improving our performance in our jobs, for improving our level of fitness, our even communication skills, or um, improving how we lead our families, how our home life is. But then when it comes to spiritual matters, we wing it. And then when the littlest thing gets us totally off, we're just so confused. Like, where was God in that moment? Well, God was there. It's just when you're not looking for him, you can't see him. We think that if we wing it, we're gonna be okay. When spiritual battles are the toughest, most strenuous type of battles you will ever have, but then we expect that we can just wing it. Like anything else, we have to be prepared. We have to have specific times throughout the day that we study and we pray and we meditate on the word. And this is not because we need our 10 minutes of Jesus time in the morning, right? But this is because, you know, I may have an hour here or an hour there throughout the day where I can read and study and meditate and I can have that on top of my 10 or 20 minutes that I had in the morning, but then I may have days where I'm very busy and I don't have that additional time. And that's okay, that happens in our lives. Things come up that we don't expect. We have busy days, but if we don't have at least some time that we set aside every day to make time for prayer and study and meditation, we will easily be blown flat we won't develop the ability to fight off these temptations that attack us around every corner. We have to practice because like Paul says here, we may have the desire, but sometimes the ability is just not there. But on top of that, look what he says in verse 21. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. That, a lot of times, if I'm honest, is maybe the most discouraging thing for me is when I try to practice these things, when I study, when I try to memorize, when I fight against temptations, I don't see a lot of fruit most of the time. I see myself fail a lot, but I don't always see fruit. Evil lies close 
at hand. And he talks about this other law that is waging war against the law of his mind. So he's, he's, it's like he's saying he's got this one law that is controlling his mind. That's the law of God that wants to do good. But then he's got another law that's waging war against that one that's working in his members. It's like he's thinking about doing good. He wants to do good. He tries to think of ways to do good. And before he even realizes it and knows what's going on, he's doing bad again. We know this very well. We really do. Verse 24, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh, I serve the law of sin. Paul gives thanks to Christ here for delivering him from the eternal effects of sin, but sin is still at work. Sinful passions and desires still rise up. They still seem like they're too difficult to fight off. They still seem like they control us sometimes. We still fail to them every day. This chapter doesn't necessarily end on a positive note. That comes the next few weeks when we're going to kind of go into a study of Romans 8. Um, or Not kind of. We're going into a deep study of Romans 8. That's when a lot of the hope comes. And what I could really do that would be beneficial for me is I could leave you kind of dangling right now, kind of not feeling good, and then next week you'd be totally pumped. Or you'd be so discouraged that you never came back. Either way. But I'm not gonna do that because see, what's gonna happen is whether I give you hope right now or whether I leave it for next week, once we pray and sing some more and get ready to go back to our lives, before we even leave this building, we're all gonna have sinful desires and passions that come back up again. We need to know how to deal with them. We need an encouragement that we can hold to that will help us in those moments. And so even though sin is at work right now, I want you to turn to Revelation chapter one. And I'm gonna read verses 12 through 19. And I think I've covered this in a couple, or brought this up in a couple sermons before, but I'll read it every week if I need to, if that's what it takes for us to get it and to cling to it. Revelation 1 verse 12. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands and in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet, though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not I am the first and the last and the living one I died and behold I am alive forevermore and I have the keys of death and Hades sin works right now sin is powerful right now and it does have a hold on us it comes in swift and mighty it comes in 
very sneaky when we least expect it. It comes from the directions that we least expect it. It comes in with accusations and condemnations. It, it will sometimes, depending on who you are, it might tell you that you're too far gone for Jesus to save. And then if you're someone who maybe you struggle with pride, it might tell you that you're not bad enough to need saving. It'll tell you whatever you need to hear in order to poke your weaknesses. And it presents things in beautiful, pleasurable packages that promise you riches, but it leaves you in shambles it leaves you always looking for something else because what it just promised you let you down. Sin is a great and powerful force that seems undefeatable. But what Revelation 1, 12 through 18 tells us is that if you believe in Christ and you are covered by the blood of Christ, you have a savior who has defeated the undefeatable. Although sin reigns now and it is powerful now, it is running out of time and you have a savior that holds the keys to death and Hades and sin and temptation and sickness. And although not right now, one day they will all be thrown away eternally distant forevermore and we will spend a perfect eternity in the presence of our savior who has redeemed us from the undefeatable. So my application this morning is short and simple. You have been forgiven by a king who has defeated the undefeatable. So this morning, fall down on your knees. It can be at your seat, at this altar, wherever. And thank him for the work that he has done, that he has not left you in a hopeless state bound to sin, but rather he has broken those chains and has now made you free to serve him. Thank him for that this morning. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for this hope that you have defeated the undefeatable, that sin which seems to linger and, and control our lives so often actually has no control over us. It can tempt us, it can do all sorts of things to us. It, it can make us see things. It can drive us crazy. Satan and, and his demons are at work always trying to push us to our limits and they can do so many things to us. They can even kill us, but what they cannot do is take our soul from you because you hold to that and your word says that there is nothing under the heavens or over the earth that can ever tear us apart from your hand. And so Father, as we go out into your world, into this world and we face struggles and we face temptation and we face heartache, give us the hope of constantly being reminded and truly believing and knowing that you have defeated the undefeatable. Thank you for your son who did this on the cross and we pray this in his name.